Hello listener, it's the host of Campbell's Football's Grant Campbell here, with a message to every one of you listening to this podcast. Please keep safe during this very stressful time with the outbreak of coronavirus affecting not just football, but our everyday lives. Make sure your friends and family are safe during this very stressful time for many of us, not just physically, but mentally too. But Campbell's Footballs will still be producing podcasts. However, there will be very few predictions because obviously there's not much football going on at the moment. I have a few in-conversation specials though, which I'm sure you would love to listen to. But at the end of the day, please make sure that you look after yourselves. Take the time to listen to the show in your own home, with friends and family. And remember that we are all in this together. So take care, be safe, and I'll see you soon. Well, welcome to another episode of Campbell's Footballs. I'm joined for this episode by a really high-profile figure, Daryl Broadfoot. Daryl, a warm welcome to the show. How are you? Good afternoon. Strange times. Strange times. Very Working from home with my 1980s Journey t-shirt on. Yeah. So apologies if there's a four-year-old who rampages in and talks more sense than I do. <laughs> Very strange times, Daryl, we're in. And I wonder what it's like for yourself, obviously, with no Scottish football on the go at the moment. Um, really weird circumstances, so to speak, with COVID-19 very much um, the thought at the front, forefront of everyone's minds. Um, well, how is it for you at the moment? It's been an interesting few weeks, um, not not least with obviously the Scottish FA uh, work that we do at, at Frame, um, especially with the joint response group on on a daily basis. I think it's important to give fans, give clubs as much information as possible, mm. and something that's ever changing. Um, it, it's a fast moving uh, virus, and the implications for football are seen not just domestically but but across the world and and we also are fortunate enough to to manage PR for the likes of um, UEFA's Champions League and Europa League and and the women's football programme so so we get the challenges, the the unique challenges that are faced by by sport but also have to remind people within sport that it's it's trivial by comparison and I think football in particular has has realised that the, the comparative triviality of when should a season start and end when bluntly people are people are dying yeah this virus is spreading yeah absolutely it, it, it really is such a pity that football becomes secondary but obviously health and families are are much more important at this uh, moment in time let's chat about you though daryl because your career really interests me um more, more, more so certainly with the latter you stages must be of, the minority of well well i follow you on my mum. i follow you on uh, on, B- on bbc sports sound and, and stuff like that and, and i want to know a little bit more about what the life is like for daryl broadfoot so can you tell me, first of all, what enticed you to go into football at the beginning? I think like most kids growing up in the west of Scotland, uh, I grew up in Castlemilk, uh, which was a great upbringing. Uh, and everybody, I was surrounded by most of my family, they all lived within a kind of half a mile radius of each other. So I had football in my, in my bones from, 
from birth almost had delusions of grandeur thought it was going to be a footballer wanted to be a footballer and when you get released by Queen's Park as a 17 year old that kind of sets you ah. <laughs> uh, realities a, a, a bit a, a bit closer so that wasn't going to happen ironically enough one of my coaches at Queen's Park then became Scotland's um, kit man a guy called Willie Neal so hold him singularly responsible for ruining my football career <laughs> interesting so it's quite, it's quite interesting to see how that sort of um, started out for you um, was there any inspiring people that kind of led you down the career path of heading into the media um, not, not really um, other than I suppose by chance uh, and, and for that I'm eternally grateful to my uncle who worked in um, newspapers with the GPMU I think it was called at the time the kind of print union when I got released left school fifth year was going to go back for sixth year didn't really know what I wanted to do um, quite fancy drama I wanted to be an actor but believe it or not I was actually probably too shy right. to, to pursue that really the <laughs> yeah, honestly I just tied it very very well um, got offered a week's work experience as a copy person or copy boy uh, back then okay and I can't make it sound any grander than you basically made tea and coffee for people I was lucky uh, that my week's work experience was at the Herald because my colleagues at the Evening Times didn't even get called by their name. Right. You would hear this bellow in the morning of copy and your job was to effectively, well, firstly, identify who was shouting for you mm. uh, and then secondly, work out whether it was a coffee run or a toast run in the morning. Mm. And that would happen all the way through the week until Friday when you, 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 you got the expenses run. Uh, and then that, that was that was funny games you were relying on people's tips but long story short I had a week's work experience in there the copy person at the time left yeah. probably should have had enough and I was asked there and then look this opportunity's uh, come to pass would you like to stay and keep you for a year if journalism's your thing then I think they had two partnerships at the time one with what was Bell College now UWS and one with Napier mm -hmm. so I didn't really fancy moving east or commuting so stayed for the year actually stayed just slightly more than that and then went to do my journalism course at Bell College but in the meantime as well as perfecting the art of tea making <laughs> if you've got time on funny story mo mo I think it was the last of the, gen the, the kind of graduate scheme through copy boy copy person uh, and some of them used to crack jokes and one of them Ian Wilson who was who became chief reporter and then went to work with I can't remember it was a kind of quasi-government comms role he got but um, Ian's great story was the fact they used to make people's tea mm -hmm. and wondered why people were starting to fall down ill um, <laughs> after a couple of weeks and I don't know if you remember but they used to have these big blue subbing pencils yes. to outline where you physically had to mark the page Yes. instead of using a spoon for weeks on end Ian was stirring people's tea with the blue subbing pen which clearly contained <laughs> lead half the editorial floor came down with lead poisoning oh cross <laughs> so, so he said that not to show me the error of his ways but to see if I could beat that in my stewardship as a copy boy um, but it was great I don't think it would pass the Geneva Convention just now but it was the warts and all this is what it's like if you want a career in yeah. journalism and I was lucky especially on the sports side 
that had some of the, the real greats, the doyens of sports journalism from Alan Davidson, Ken Gallagher, Ian Paul, uh, people who were at the top of the game, Douglas Lowe, God rest him, who mm-hmm. was um, the golf writer, Ian Scott, a sports writer. I had some of the best names and some of the most experienced people. Jim Reynolds, um, who kind of helped give me a love of boxing. All these people helped shape my career. Absolutely. And, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. That's a really good um, spread of people there as well, and, and, and certainly it helped you, no doubt, in your journey, because I've got your, I've got your Twitter <laughs> profile in front of <laughs> me here. I, I tell you what, but it also gave me a very early lesson when I started as a full time so I went through the years work experience um, survived it remained intact and at the end of my first actual week because I was still doing I was going to matches um, and I remember coming in on a Sunday because all of the sub-editors were of a generation there was a new bunch of footballers coming through there was this 17 year old kid from Casamilk who uh, knew his stuff so I'd get on a Sunday and help even captioning the pictures because mm. we all know photographers can't write properly so <laughs> I'd have to go in and decode their caption pictures and basically just identify footballers for accuracy from that again to sub-editing mm. got my first match report um, I think it was Hibs St Johnson from memory nil-nil game my dad dropped me off uh, it was at McDermott Park my dad drove me because I couldn't drive at that point horrendous game but I think my mum still got the curtains my first ever kind of 500 word yeah. goalless draw uh, <laughs> article in the Herald but the first week as a proper journalist I got myself a car mm. I was all proud of it it was, an old, it was a Rover 214 and on a Friday went down to the press bar which was the yes standard practice um, whereas before I'd used to get the expenses and you'd effectively double your copy boy money on a Friday I went down as a bona fide journalist I tried to put my hand in my pocket no chance and I think it was Ken and I said I'll just have a Diet Coke and honestly it was one of those scenes where the music stopped and everybody looked at you yeah or what I said I'll have a Diet Coke I've, I've, I've got my new car so I can't really drink and he stared at me with everybody else watching and I felt about three for going, son, here's your first lesson. If you don't want a drink, don't come into your fucking pub. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I, I'm now conscious in my in my new guys uh, at Frame, when you tell some of the kind of young account execs and, and young PR team some of these stories, A, they think you're lying, mm-hmm. and B, it just kind of reaffirms that I've become one of the older generation. <laughs> Brilliant. I went from being one of the young upstarts at the Scottish yeah. FA to, yeah. to being an old we'll come and chat about frame. we'll come and chat about Frame in a bit more detail later on because yeah. I've got a Twitter profile for you here partner at Frame PR ex-head of comms at the Scottish FA <laughs> what a grand title that is because I know a lot See, of... these aren't laughter lines by the way <laughs> and I've got a grey bit of my beard there that's responsible uh, brilliant I've, the I, anyway. I've got a lot of friends back home well here well not obviously at the moment because obviously we're in lockdown but you know I really would like to know a lot more about what goes on behind the scenes at the SFA how much can you tell me <laughs> I used to joke about this and then laterally I think they got panicking if I wrote a book nobody would believe it and actually see you could you could do a trilogy and still not do it justice it was the best thing I ever did um, and that I went from being a bit of an agitating herald journalist cocky arrogant youngster and I'm old enough and hopefully wise enough to see that now and carefree, didn't care for 
big organisations and, and kind of wrote that way. And I was asked if I wanted the job. Um, at the time, George Pete and Gordon Smith were in charge. And my instinct was to say no. Because I had spent probably a good three years having a right go at the Scottish FA almost mm-hmm. on a weekly basis. My column from the the old youth action plan uh, that Frank McAvity was responsible for, I think I called it routinely the youth in action plan. So I thought, nah, I don't want that, I don't want to become a blazer, blah, blah. And then I thought about it. And if I didn't accept it, I didn't accept the opportunity, A, to understand what it was actually like, and B, help the organisation see themselves as others saw them, mm. then how could I go back and have yeah. the same opinions based on ignorance? So I think there was a realisation, sorry, that's my wife putting dishes in the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> keep keep, keep going. <laughs> and for the avoidance of doubt, that's normally my job. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I accepted it, served my notice period, had my leaving due in the press bar, in November 2009, uh, same day that Scotland were being cuffed by Wales. Mm. Now, I hadn't been due to start for another three, four weeks. I was going to go on holiday, take stock, kind of mm-hmm. decompress from life and journalism. And in the early hours of, I think was it was a Saturday night game, so early hours of Sunday morning, I George Pete, the president of the SFA, on the phone. Better now George had a good sense, maybe knew what was coming, he'd gone to Azerbaijan with the 21s, so he wasn't even at the game, but knew that the natives were restless. I might need you to come in earlier, it's okay, how, how much earlier? Can you come and see the boat today? And that was effectively day one of life at the Scottish FA. Mm-hmm. My first day was unfortunately George Burley's last day mm-hmm. uh, as a Scottish FA employee. Yeah. And that was a baptism by fire, mm-hmm. because... I think everybody realised by that point that the situation was unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And people who think that they can go seamlessly from a career in journalism into PR, um, they're lying. Yeah. You you only get there over time. Uh, my trick was to make it sound as if I knew what I was talking about, find my way, not be led into the, oh, it'll be okay, just let's buy time. I think everybody knew that mm. a change was needed. Yeah. And so the one thing that you realise is in day one, honesty, clarity of what you're saying, um, and decisiveness. Yes. Yeah. But my God, it wasn't wasn't half a baptism by fire. Oh, absolutely not. And, and of course, the the resultant six years were plain sailing. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Because I think a lot of my friends were, are always very interested in saying, like, what goes on at these SFA meetings? Because obviously we watch a lot of games as football fans. We see yeah. decisions that, you know, make you scratch your head about why is the referee not given a penalty for what looks like a clear handball? Or why is he sent this guy off for two yellow cards when the first one looks unbelievably harsh? I want to, I want to just know a little bit more about the sort of the review process. Because you obviously talk about this quite a lot on Radio Scotland and, and have this discussion with Kenny McIntyre and the guys and I'm quite keen to learn a little bit more about what it sort of entrails 
Yeah, and for the avoidance of doubt, I have these conversations even when I go and see my folks as well. My dad and my sister are big football fans, and I spend much of my time arguing with them as well. Because, well, how can the referee say that? The best thing I can say is Stephen Thomas and Leanne Crichton did a recent referee yes. documentary yep. on BBC. And it was keen that we, that we did that to let people see exactly what it's like. Because when you have it from the comfort of your armchair, watching these decisions, it looks easy. It does. When you are literally in the middle of the field with a split second to make a decision that can make or break a match, it's, it's, I wouldn't want it. I don't understand why people want to become referees. They must have some kind of masochism yeah. uh, in, in their lives. It's it's nigh on impossible to go through 90 minutes. In fact, it's impossible to go through 90 minutes without mm-hmm. making a mistake. But the same applies to players. Yeah. But you don't have the same level of forensic scrutiny if player X misses a penalty or goalkeeper Y throws one in. Yeah. And what happens is managers throw the protective arm around those players and they'll learn from that to be disappointed. Absolutely. Referees don't have fans, a bit like the SFA no. and, and by extension the SPFL. They're they seen as the bad mind villains. But it's no different to government. Absolutely. It's no different to government. So you have to accept that. Um, but the review process is something that, I mean, has evolved over time. Uh, and I go back to my early days there and what was in place for disciplinary issues was a general purposes committee. Mm-hmm. And that general purposes committee comprised of well-meaning, well-intended, but ultimately um, committee members from lower leagues or, uh, or kind of regional associations administering justice potentially from Rangers Celtic down the way. So I think there was a realisation that that had to change um, and it then became more of a judicial system. That's what yeah. clubs wanted. Clubs, Celtic Rangers, um, began bringing in QCs to mm-hmm. take on and savage, sadly, yes. some of the general purposes committee members. And there was a realisation that the game had to become more professionalised off the field as well as on it, and it had to become more judicial in its di- disciplinary functions. Yeah. The downside of having a judicial system, the downside of having so many lawyers involved over a period of time, is that you have a rule book that would... Uh, drive you up the wall when yeah, trying to get a simple, clear, precise sentence. I once half joked um, after about two years that we should do a version written by the Plain English Society, <laughs> and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed my opinion of that. Or write it in Latin. <laughs> it might as well be. Um, but the point is, you can't have it both ways. And I hear arguments on it needs to be for football folk again. Mm-hmm. Mm, careful because all it takes another couple of decisions that the game doesn't like and yeah. so football folk can't be relied upon to make mm-hmm. legal decisions so the reality is whatever system is in place people will have a view that it's not right yeah i think the the rule book because again there's two things they're separating the role of the compliance officer from the rule book itself the compliance officers effectively inherit the rule book mm-hmm. and i think even Claire and, and her predecessors would admit that the rule book could be done with simplification. Absolutely. There are some rules in there that never get used. Yeah. Um, the challenge is devolving enough time and effort to, to get that done, to simplify it and make sure that it's it's not as overbearing yeah. as, it, as it currently feels. Because I think a lot of football fans like myself just scratch our heads at some decisions. I mean, obviously, we, we, we're kind of looking at what's happening in England with VAR, and that seems to yeah. just add another caveat to the problem, in, in essence, in terms of the rules are 
are almost as complicated as they are, and then you add VAR on top of that, it's almost like you're, it's almost becoming a science rather than about the actual football. Yeah, I get that, but I, but I think even compared to England, England's got a specific challenge just now with, it's not so much VAR, the te- as with many things, it's not the technology, it's the people who That's true. Um, deploy it. Yeah. So VAR as a principle is fine, how do you make um, more correct decisions, how do you empower a match efficient to make more mm. right decisions? So I don't think anybody can argue with that, but the application of it in England in particular has created some problems. 100% agree. Uh, in Scotland, and, and I'm kind of strong in this, for for many years now there's been the absence of a genuine, credible, bona fide title race. Mm-hmm. So people need something else to talk about, yeah. something else to fill the void. Media needs something else to, to bring controversy or to bring um, mm-hmm. column inches and opinion. And discipline, refereeing, um, has filled that gap. Absolutely. I used to joke the one because, uh, as is always the case, football looks at new ways of how do you raise revenue, how do you increase sponsorship. The one way you could absolutely do it and give fans a new piece of content is if you streamed a judicial panel tribunal every Thursday. Imagine the views it would get. Mm-hmm. I'd surely be interested yeah. to see what goes on behind the scenes because uh, the it one that was... immediately springs to my mind is the James Keating incident in the the Tunnock's Caramel Cup, whatever it is. Correct. Correct, and and that's a prime example. In fact, and, and, and without going into too much detail, but the assumption uh, I heard on BBC and, and Chris, the assumption there is that three people on a panel, the referee must have been the only one that could, that could two out of three mm-hmm. uh, remarkably uh, rejected the appeal yeah. at, at first instance. Don't be so sure. What if the only person who actually <laughs> rejected that was? Not a football person. Yeah, yeah. And do you think there should be some sort of clarity in terms of who does or looks at some of these decisions in more detail if they go to a tribunal? What do you mean by clarity? Well, uh, in terms of if, if they're all like either ex-professional football players or like they've been involved in refereeing or... Yeah, I mean, it... I think the, the cab rank system involves um, players, referees, there's maybe former, former coaches professionals as they are loosely uh, termed. The challenge with players is, and I think PFA's position remains the same, that they're reluctant to naturally recommend players that players are on the system, players individually mm-hmm. um, have signed up to it. But I think PFA as a body are reluctant to do it because in their belief it's effectively former players potentially punishing other players when mm-hmm. the flip side of that applies as well. Yeah. Um, there's almost as many appeals that get upheld as there are uh, disciplinary tribunals. Yeah. So well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a need to review the list because it started about 100 in the early days. I think it's down to maybe something in the region of, of 60. There's probably merit in can you harvest that a bit further and have a smaller group so that you get something akin to consistency. The flip side of that argument is you don't get much consistency in yeah. the law of the land. In any case, no two... Um, cases in a sheriff court mm. 
yeah, have the same no, outcome, even though they may be the uh, identical charges. And, and what's your status on VAR? Because if, if, could it be implemented in Scottish football? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of a game that springs to my mind which could have changed the outcome of a match. And the one that really springs to my mind is the Cup semi-final, the year that Inverness Cali Thistle won it, where they were 1-0 down. Celtic had a great chance to double the lead. It was a clear handball, not spotted by the officials. And obviously Cali go on to win that match. I mean, is, is VAR something you see happening in Scottish football in the next five, ten years' time? I'd like to think sooner than five years. Um, I get that there's a counter-argument to it, but in my mind, I can go back to what is VAR for. VAR is there to make more correct decisions mm-hmm. or to help a match official make more correct decisions. Yeah. Ironically enough, there was a there was a nice opportunity, if you, if you look at Euro 2020, Hamden being a host city venue, VAR would have been part of um, the Hamden configuration. With a fair wind, that could have been one of the the trials, you need to go through a kind of 12 month trial period before you can immediately go to mm-hmm. implement VAR. But that certainly would have been a good opportunity. It may yet come to that. The problem is, I don't think the kit will be installed in time to have looked at it. But listen, VAR is not going away no. over time, and even now it's more cost effective than it was 12 months ago and, yeah. and two years ago when it, when it first um, came into play. It's inevitable. Now, you'll have arguments from clubs maybe further up in the Premiership that if we've got 50 or 60,000 fans mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make a massive difference but it might just give the referee something to think about mm-hmm. so I think some clubs will look at the, I suppose their own situation and say do we need it there's yeah. the financial uh, consideration, the challenge you've got now given the financial peril that clubs find themselves in and when cash flow is, is really a massive problem, is in the immediate future trying to push for VAR Absolutely. when clubs are more yeah. concerned at the moment with paying the bills and, and, and keeping the clubs open. Yeah. No, I, I, but I'd like to think over the next two, three years, VAR becomes a, a fabric of Scottish football. Yeah. Referees are in favour of it, as you would imagine. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think clubs collectively see the, the merit in it, yeah. Scottish referee do. Yeah, no, and I think referees need all the help they can get. I mean, I, I, I'm an advocate that referees definitely get the, the bare brunt of some really bad rubs of the green at times. And as we mentioned earlier on, the Stephen Thompson and Leanne Crichton um, s- s- uh, supplement they did, you know, they only get one shot at it. You know, we get the benefit of like five or six different replays, five or six different angles, and, you know, they get one snapshot in a moment of time, and I, I, I feel for them. I remember watching a, a UEFA documentary called Kill the Ref. Okay. They've subsequently changed the title because it's a wee bit of century. And it followed referees on Euro 2008. Mm-hmm. And it was terrific. Um, and, I, and I dispute anybody to watch that and not have a degree of sympathy towards mm-hmm. match officials because it was there once and all. And I keep saying that and I've fallen out with my family over it. Um, who look at referee decisions and go well he must have done that deliberately why would any referee for the sake of 850 quid mm-hmm. minus tax put themselves in a position to make a decision yeah. that impacts on their family life when they go back home impacts their working life when they go into work and you'll have probably worst of all the kind of patronising oh don't worry about it yeah. to the mocking from colleagues to the professional ignominy of mm-hmm. being marked down or missing a game I, I, I go back to there must be a kind of masochistic streak in people who want to be referees but I've got every um, respect for them yeah. putting themselves through what they do even now talk about footballers 
self-isolating and keeping themselves fit. There'll be referees pounding streets responsibly, yeah. um, keeping themselves ready for whenever the yeah. league season starts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, part of me, and I'd floated the idea, I've gotten, gotten pretty much everybody to sign up to it maybe four years ago doing something similar mm. could we do a documentary that showcases three or four referees what they're like in real life yeah and I would have defied anybody to I would have, that I would have been interested to see that I would have been interested it would have been ready yeah, yeah I'd we, been re- we got to the point of commission um, in fact it was uh, Keen Friel the same producers that did the scheme um, and I think in the final days just as we were getting to contract one or two of the referees Understandably, but disappointingly, took cold feet. Mm. Um, but I don't think any of them would have come out any worse than the reputation yeah. that collective refereeing had at that time, or the, the, the unfair pressure that was put on them. And another so one to maybe yeah. revisit. Yeah, uh, it's certainly one to revisit for sure. And another caveat to add to all this as well is the the rise and rise of social media. You know, there's lots of fans taking to social media, lots of players that obviously yeah. take to it as well, and and sort of showcase sometimes their frustrations at things. As as a person yourself who works in communications, what what is what is social media like for you in terms of individually, but also as an involvement within the SFA and other sort of communication bodies? How how how, how does that work for you? In a does it work positively or does it work negatively? Um, I'm mixed. By. I mean, I think to any business, so we'll, we'll touch on the kind of professional stuff first. It's essential. Mm-hmm. It's the most important way of communicating. It's the most important way now, I think, of marketing. Yeah. Um, it's certainly more cost-effective in terms of advertising and taking a big 48-sheet outdoors and hoping that people see it and convert it into tickets. So, so social media is an absolute fabric of any football organisation's communication, but also media spend. You, and you look at it now, you look at what the clubs are doing um, from Partick Thistle renaming to uh, Motherwell uh, and what they do in the community but also what the players are doing now yes. catching up the players when they're done I just think it, it gives fans a glimpse of footballers it gets them closer to footballers in a way that I never had when I was growing yeah. up and I had my yeah. heroes that I wanted to find out about even right down to Hollywood stars people are now more accessible than ever before yeah. and it's it's hugely important personally I love it. I mean, I, I really do enjoy it. Uh, I have running feuds with one or two uh, Twitter friends of mine who, I mean, there's a guy who almost on a daily basis, even after I left the SFA, who just continued to, hi, Daryl, what are you going to do about the five week? And, and just the same stuff over on a daily basis. That takes a hell of a commitment. Yeah. So even people that I'd rather mute, mm-hmm. It's a conversation. People, I think certainly in the media and among celebrity culture as well, there's this, woe me, somebody mm-hmm. said this on mm-hmm. Twitter to me and now I'm offended. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't need to read it. Mm-hmm. You don't need to go on it. But if you choose to go on it, you have to accept that it works both mm-hmm. ways. You're, touch, you're touching into my next question was, how, how does these people that message you in there maybe being a little bit out of order, does it affect you mentally? I can see how it can. But again, I, I go back to me want to be an actor when I was younger and, and being too shy and you laugh. There's, there's a natural part of you that is wounded by it. I hate it from the moment I had my first article sub-edited yeah. and they changed my intro. It's, it's wounding. Yeah. Because in your mind you want to do the best that you can Absolutely. do. Absolutely. No, I can, I can um, agree with that. 
you accept her for what it is. Yeah. You don't navel gaze about it. You don't come out. Um, I, I think and and use it almost as a as a stick, kind of weaponizing it. Social media is open to all, mm-hmm. uh, and the extent to which you choose to interact with social media mm-hmm. is under your control. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy it. Enjoy banter. Enjoy having chats with football people, fans who've got different views to the views I've got. Yeah. Uh, they're invariably right. But <laughs> yeah, you use it responsibly, but don't yeah. cry if no, people I'm take you to task. No, I, I fully agree with that completely. Um, when you're writing as a journalist, um, do you feel that you're almost pressurised, almost like football players are when they're out in the pitch and they always get their marks out of 10 after every game. Do you feel as a journalist that you're in that bracket as well to a, to a point? Um, funnily enough, I left the Herald and God, I can't remember the last time I actually sat down and wrote a, a, a piece that I was um, either not doing for a client, just a piece of one. I always wanted to write a book but ran out of time. Still time yet. Um, my my career in journalism coincided with the, the the kind of rise in social media. So I was fortunate that anybody who'd complain to me <laughs> would either have to fo- would either have to phone up the office or write me a letter. Yeah. Um, and then when I left, it just became abuse by email in yeah. the Scottish Chevy. But there was a funny story to to the kind of Herald correspondence. I used to do a Where Are They Now column. Mm-hmm. And one of the subjects was, well, I was player Alan Gordon, mm-hmm. and I said, I think my intro was uh, in the words of the late great Eddie Turnbull, it was said of Alan Gordon, the problem with you son is all your brains are in your head. Mm-hmm. Thought nothing more of it, I went back in the following Thursday after doing my, my college stint, and got my first real phone call to the Herald desk, mm-hmm. picked up, hello, Herald Sport. And it was a woman's voice, and she said, I'd just, I'd just like to tell you that um, I'm Eddie Turnbull's wife, and I'd just like you to know that he's alive and he's fine, <laughs> and he had a right good laugh at your piece. <laughs> and then years later, a colleague, Rob Robertson, actually, I think, wrote his, uh, of course, wrote his biography. And he did a press conference and he said, look, why now? I think Eddie was in his 70s when he wrote it. And he said, well, when somebody at the Glasgow Herald said I was dead a few years ago, I thought I'd better get a move. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I think you're looking back on that and just kind of laugh about it, because I suppose that's all you could really have done. But you can laugh about it. I was utterly horrified at the time. And you sit and you stare at the page and go, I can't actually change that. Yeah. I can't do it. Look at that. And, and it's there and black and white. It's almost, almost the equivalent to the, the Alan Brazil joke with Bob Monkhouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one that sort to mind. <laughs> Let's talk about frame PR because I didn't know anything about it and we've very briefly touched upon it at the start. Can you give a little bit of a flavour to people listening to this, what what it's about? Well, I've kind of gone back to front because I started off in journalism, went into effectively corporate communications with a big um, footballing organisation and... My old friend Stephen McCrainer, who I went to college with at Bell College um, 20 years, over 20 years ago now, wow. And we always kind of kept in touch, and our paths always crossed because when I was a journalist, he did the PR for the SPL at the time. When I went to the Scottish FA, 
He was head of comms for Greaves Sport, who were one of our uh, kit suppliers. And we kept in touch. He left um, effectively to set up a PR wing within Frame, which, which for the last 30 years has been a big kind of advertising agency. Mm-hmm. And it's now a, a, a kind of integrated communications and, and marketing agency. And we got drunk one day, three and a bit years ago, just before Christmas. And he said, Do you fancy it? At that point, I spent six years at the SFA when I said in my mind that I'd only stay for three. And then Rangers were liquidated, and that took about three years mm-hmm. of uh, everybody's lives. And I was needing a change. I thought, you know what, we'll do it. The downside of the, the kind of worry was that I just moved house and I had a one year old kid, so I went home one day, half pissed, and said to my wife, right, that's it, I'm going to hand in my notice tomorrow. And I did it. And people always look at it and say, oh, you, you left journalism at the right time. I, I'm, above all, I miss having a column. I miss having an opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, went to the Scottish FA and probably stayed maybe a year or so more than I'd wanted to as a staff member. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, people think that this has been some kind of great plan. But actually, um, it's just happened that way. Yeah. And it's been great fun. We work with, well, we started off with no sport clients. Uh, I harboured kind of weird notions of not actually getting involved in sport to do something a bit different. And then over a period of weeks, months, we started uh, doing PR for the likes of the Open Championship, working on a bit more of the Scottish FA's corporate comms. One of the first pitches we had was for UEFA. Mm-hmm. And we won that up against some of the biggest uh, London agencies. So it's been really good. Um, It's opened my eyes. It's sharpened me up again. Anybody who's been involved in agency life will attest to just how fast-paced and relentless it is. So I feel fitter and healthier at 41 than I did when I was 21. (laughs) Um, And I would would genuinely recommend it for, for anybody. So that's been three years now. Which again is, I can remember having the conversation with my wife saying I was leaving. Um, I remember having a different conversation with my dad, who at every point I'd still be the Herald if it was, in fact, I'd probably still be in secondary school if it was my dad's choice. Um, yeah. But no, sometimes you have to change it up, yeah. take, a, take a little departure, pivot, and glad I've done it. I'm glad I've done it, and actually now exposed to more sports than ever before. I'm fortunate yeah. enough to be on the board of Boxing Scotland. So I have to deal with Charlie Flynn on a semi-regular basis, <laughs> but it's but it's been great fun. Yeah, uh, f- football is is one of the loves of my life, along with boxing. But yeah. we've we work with a lot of sports, a lot of sports governing bodies, yeah. a lot of sports people. I wouldn't change it for the world. Is that your advice to younger people that are interested in going into PR and comms, is to vary it out and be as diverse as possible? What I've learned is that young people don't actually need advice. Uh, I'm blessed. We have late teens, early 20s throughout our organisation. And the maturity, and I think social media and and I suppose the, the vlogging phenomenon has made it a lot easier for teenagers to communicate in ways that would have been unimaginable uh, to me 20 years ago when, as I say, I was a kind of shy, uncertain... Uh, boy from a scheme yeah. so I think rather than advise people I think kids now come out of uni 
hugely decorated and it's not so much advice it's kind of practical experience yeah. and giving people opportunities I think current generation are able to make those decisions for themselves but just need the exposure to those opportunities 100% agree uh, yeah, certainly my experience. No, no, I completely agree with that. And coming from a scientist, I mean, I, I, I obviously do my own work as a as a scientist to, for for the civil service. But I, I obviously did my PhD, and I was I've always maintained a very big interest in football as my own hobby. And that's yeah. what I, I do my podcast as a person who just loves football and loves chatting to the different variety of people that are involved with. You do this football. for a bit of light relief. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, I do this for a job. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, what is it like doing what you love as a job? Because because you know, as a, I do it as a hobby, and I wanted to see what the difference was like. Um, I'll be honest. Throughout um, the kind of journalistic days, and it's funny, and I don't know if it's a generational thing. People don't trust you to write without fear or favour. So mm. there's always a, and you get it in social media. I'm, I'm fortunate if that. were all Celtic fans, dad's side, he was a fan, so I, I was a bit of a mongrel. Um, I think I've probably watched more Celtic in recent years, but I've grown up um, a Rangers fan. Uh, so it's interesting because you kind of get desensitised from it all, mm. mm-hmm. and you learn not to let it get in the way. You also realise that access to clubs and stuff is so limited that... Yeah. It, 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 it's like never meet your never meet your heroes mm-hmm. so you kind of switch very early on my kind of early journalistic career you switch from being a, fo- a full time football fan if that makes sense to th- this is something that you have to do and you have to do it responsibly yeah. otherwise you're toast mm-hmm. um, I'd like to think that across the game I did things the right way I never willingly picked fights yeah. ironically but the one institution that I probably criticised more than any I ended up working for for six yeah. years yeah. and it wasn't gratuitous it was because I, th- there were things that I as a fan things as an outsider I wasn't aware of or, yeah. or didn't agree with Yeah. and so as I said it is difficult to look at football the same way as say my, my dad and sister doing it and I'm kind of envious of people who can go and enjoy their game and and, and be a fan in the way that the game's intended yeah. but I, I think when you work in football administration as, as I did I think when you see the responsibilities that the clubs and, and organisations have it it does it takes away or it replaces some of the magic with, with responsibility yes. if yeah. that makes sense yeah. no no that's an interesting way to look about it now I, I just wanted to know the, the, the slight difference um, one thing that really interests me as well and we mentioned this at the beginning you're also involved uh, now and again on the Sports Sound Radio programme with Kenny McIntyre and crew Hi. Um, yes. what's it like working with those guys mental <laughs> mental <laughs> um, well it's a thing I suppose it was a later after my journalism I always wanted to add this thing that I wanted to work for the BBC mm-hmm. I don't know why but I just kind of had it in my head that that would be a great thing to do Yeah. and I've been fortunate of dipped in and out of broadcasting I've never actually done a single recorded interview anything I've done I've done live and right back to remember the first time I got invited on the sports scene results program the producer put this talking through what it was like and I'd never been in a studio before mm-hmm. sweating sweating like a pig <laughs> P- 
panic-stricken, mouth dried up, didn't know what to, because I'd never had any formal training in broadcast journalism, yeah. mine was all written journalism, and I suppose that's the best way to learn, getting thrown straight into live TV, and the producer said, do you take talk back? So I didn't want to say no, because I thought it'd make me sound stupid, mm-hmm. so I went, yeah, and then it's the worst thing at that time that I ever did, because they <laughs> put the earpiece in, and there was a producer shouting at me, an assistant producer, somebody counting down, and I was on with Pat Nevin, and I don't know who else was on, maybe Craig Parson, I'm trying to show how long ago it was. Mm-hmm. But you learn the trick, you learn that if you had three minutes to talk, Pat Nevin would start, talk for two and a half minutes and leave you with 15 seconds each to talk yeah, through your yeah. points. So, <laughs> um, that, that was interesting, I, I love it. Uh, I worry that I become boring. Even in this, I worry that I, I, I become. I, I'm, I'm, intri- I'm really intrigued. I'm, in, I'm personally interested. I'm because I'm, I'm quite a fun guy. When yeah. I'm not talking about yeah. the finer points of yeah. Article yeah. Thirteen Point Six. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that, that was my thing. And when they asked if I would go back after I'd left the Scottish FA, I said, "Well, so long as, so long as I can bring value." I said, and I don't want to get involved in the kind of tawdry debates. Whether I agree with rules or not, what I can mm-hmm. do is, through experience in there, give you the facts. Yeah, yeah. Now, there are some facts that I would disagree with as well, mm-hmm. but I think it helps the dynamic because if you have three people with a little information, yeah, it makes for a good show, but actually it's not really founded on yeah. the reality. So as much as I'm probably playing up to it now... Um, in terms of rules and regulations, but they've been really important last. Absolutely, six no, absolutely. I'd like to, I'd like to think I offer something a bit different. And yeah. Try not to take myself too seriously. Yeah. I mean, I, those are the things that. I, those are the things when you said that the comments um, get to me. Those are the those are the things that get to me on social media. It's become like a therapy session now. Um, <laughs> like if if seen it be coming across as dull or high handed or pompous. I generally don't try. It's just if I'm quoting a rule book that's yeah effectively written in hieroglyphics, it, it takes a bit of time. Oh to no, get absolutely. Through. No, I fully, I fully accept that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because uh, I, I, I make, and I make a point of apologising to the listeners that it might be boring, but yeah. it's actually relevant to this. So I, I try I, and do it and do it with a bit of do it with a smile. Absolutely. Well, you have to, and this is the point that people need to understand that some of these. You know the rhetorics and things like that. They have to be. They have to be discussed and talked about because you know that's the foundations of our game. You know, they, these things need to be talked about. The, the what I particularly like is the the actual discussion you have with people like Tom English and people like Michael Stewart, who are very high profile people anyway. And uh, you know, to get your point across with working with those guys must must be quite hard. Well, I tell you what, it, what what it does do, and I'll, I'll say this. When you go on with Tom and Mike, you need to know your stuff. Yes. There, there are, and, I, and I won't be disparaging. Um, or should I? No, I won't. <laughs> um, but there are times when you can go on and, and feel comfy that you know more of the subject matter than, than people around the room. Yeah. There are footballers on the show who know far more about football than me, but I don't profess to be a footballer. Yeah. Um, but with Michael... You know you need to know your stuff yeah. because you'll come. You'll, you'll just keep coming back. Absolutely. And, and I like that. I, I prefer that. Yeah. Um, not sure my mum agrees. In fact, <laughs> I don't think I'd, I was going to get them on a on a video call just to patch up because my mum actually thinks it's all serious. And I have to say, look, it's a bit of fear, but it's dull if everybody agrees for an hour. Yeah. That hour yeah. just takes an absolute age if everybody's in agreement and yeah. it's all respectful. So. 
I think a respectful disagreement uh, makes the time pass quicker. Absolutely. It's better. It's, it's a form of entertainment. Well, so exactly. It creates debate. Yeah. Creates debate. And I, I mean, I, I, I think the, the views on both sides. I mean, I've, I've listened to quite a lot of the sports sound podcasts and stuff like that. And Kenny McIntyre, to me, almost sounds like the referee in the middle of a boxing match having to sort of separate a couple of guys. No, no, no. Kenny McIntyre is a troublemaker. <laughs> Ke- Ke- Kenny McIntyre is a boy that puts the fire on the playground and blames somebody else for it. <laughs> and uh, he's very good at it. And again, it, it, he's punchy. He knows what he wants from mm-hmm. the show. Um, as a result, he generates more headlines and, and, and coverage because uh, I think he'll ask questions that people will uh, will refuse to ask. Mm-hmm. He doesn't pull any punches. But he's a troublemaker. No. I think he knows that. Oh, well. Oh, well. Re- revels in it. <laughs> you need people like that, though. Correct. Because well, you always have to look at people like Adrian Durham on TalkSport. You know, that's that's how they get listeners. Well, I, I think you're now getting to the other end of the spectrum. Well, maybe. But, but, but yeah, listen, people understand their, their niche. Kenny, but really, really forensic in, in his preparation as well. Mm. Uh, and, and it's good fun. Mm. I think, above all, we go in, have a bit of fun, um, and try and if not exactly educate people, but to, to give a bit of perspective to issues that people seem to be utterly fixated with. And hopefully end up friendly afterwards. <laughs> That's the thing, however, even some of the some of the most obnoxious fallouts I've had with Michael Stewart, at the end of it, as soon as the the show's finished, he's either away showing me, well, I've got this gym involved, or he's, he's in the office. Yeah. Mostly anyway, because he's friends with some of their yeah. partner agencies. But no, it's... It's just what we do, and thereafter we go back to being normal, mostly civilised human yeah. beings. And Tom English is a guy who has quite a lot of knowledge of the Scottish game as well. I mean, what's it like working with alongside him? Tom's great. You know, you know what he reminds me of? Um, the, the old He-Man figure, Orko, mm. the wizard. <laughs> yes. Just because he, 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 he... Full of fun, but has a solution to everything. Hugely knowledgeable... Um, and he's great fun. He's absolutely wonderful. He was a terrific writer. Um, if you've read some of yes. his books, like yes. I, I first encountered Tom when he was at the Scotsman Scotland Sunday. Formidable writer, mm-hmm. absolutely formidable writer, and has taken that into his new broadcasting career. So a huge amount of respect. And actually, one of a one of a dying breed. I, I referenced the people I was lucky enough to to work beside, and I know the kind of media landscape has changed. But people of authority, people of substance, mm. like Tom, are few and far between now. Yeah. Hugh McDonald, again, had the absolute pleasure and fortune of working with you, um, latterly in my sports writing career, but, I'm, but an absolute gem. Mm-hmm. So Tom is the doyen of yeah. sports writing now along, alongside Hugh. Keevens over at Clyde as well. Absolutely, they are, yeah. They are the standard bearers, and we can only aspire to yeah, heard, those levels of greatness. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Hugh Keevens because I heard you on Clyde. Was it last week? Last bit. I don't past? discriminate when it comes to radio outlets. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that. That's quite harsh. <laughs> but yes, I, I heard you on Clyde, and uh, it was very, very interesting. And I think you had a full house on the pundit um, segment of that I'm show. Gl- I'm, I'm, I'm glad you listened to that point because they're after a struggle with the goal. <laughs> um, Trying to beat you up I, here, Daryl. <laughs> exactly. Listen, I've known Hugh since I was a teenager, and he used to show me the ropes. Once got me sued by Frank Warren. 
um, because we used to work in the boxing beat together. And I can't remember what it was, but he, he went to a press or he phoned up Frank Warren. We used to share the occasional story or, or I would speak to a boxer and he'd, whatever it was, and Hugh's notepad was a thing of beauty. So whereas everybody would record it or transcribe through some notes, Hugh would have effectively eight words written down from a 25-minute press conference or interview. And I remember one day writing a story, perfectly sensible, same story, but, but, but something that I'm sure it was Frank Warren took grave offence to, mm-hmm. and indeed the quotes that were attributed to him. Mm-hmm. So I phoned up Hugh and said, Hugh, what's going on? Why's, dear boy, dear boy, this is what he meant to say. So that was that was the kind of start of our relationship. I had great times with Hugh. Yeah. We went to Celtic's pre-season trip um, to Chicago one day and I think there must have been about four bottles of red wine um, a place called Smith and Walensky's overlooking the river Right. and by the end he was on the chair singing Sinatra, I literally just had to guide him back towards <laughs> yeah, brilliant but an absolute legend Oh yeah, absolute legend. He is, and I, I like listening to the Super Scoreboard program from time to time, and I, I just think, I just think he comes across with some excellent nuggets of information when you require them. But more than that, he's an orator, and there's yeah. not many. I mean, I, I, again, the, the best bar none for me was Hugh McIlvanny, mm-hmm. uh, and anybody who's a fan of boxing that hasn't read Hugh McIlvanny on boxing really isn't a boxing fan. Um, but Hugh, it's not so much a punditry role. He is, he is the oracle, mm. um, and and the effort he puts in to that performance, because that's what he does. It's a performance. Yes. He loves football, but that that ability to present to orate is is something that's that's missing, I think, in, in society just now, but certainly in in, in modern sports yeah. journalism. But, but Hugh is an absolute an absolute gem. There was a great story a few years back on Clyde when I when I used to do it. And I think we're talking 10, 15 years ago. We used to have these really tacky seats in the studio. And I was on with Derry Johnson one day. Who else? Derry Johnson, Daryl King, and I can't remember who was presenting. I might have been Jim Bellan. No, of course. But suffice to, suffice to say, um, Derek had eaten something that had disagreed with him. Mm. And midway through the show, live on air, because you had those like um, the aviator speakers that they had on the big yes. cans and the, the microphone. Uh-huh. And DJ had kind of gone down, and whatever the stomach upset was, let, let's just say, well, he farted live on radio. <laughs> Not like a discreet, this was full whoopee cushion. <laughs> oh, God. Absolutely folded. None of us could speak. Had to go to an emergency ad break. <laughs> came back on. Came back on. They'd have been as well shutting the show down. <laughs> Fast forward 24 hours when DJ went back in to do the following night show, and I think one of the Sun reporters had been dispatched out to give Derek a dozen cans of Heinz baked beans. <laughs> Jeans. And he was fuming and had the temerity to blame a squeaky chair. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> oh, crumbs. 
<laughs> this is so unprofessional. I shouldn't be laughing like that. You should have been in the studio. Oh, crumbs. I don't think I would have survived. Um, we're coming up towards the... Smelling all the smell. Oh, gee, I can smell it coming through here. It's making me feel ill. Um, which actually is quite poignant because we're actually coming you, very I bet, close. I bet you expected a hybrid, uh, kind of highbrow show here. This, well, this, this well, we've, we've kind of toned it. The tone's fairly been dropped towards the end of this. But I've, I've been enjoyable. Sorry about that. Ah, do not worry about it. I'm coming towards the end, Daryl. I, I, I've actually really, really enjoyed this conversation with yourself. Good. Where, where do you, where do you see yourself going forward in the future? Because obviously, your your work with Frame PR is growing yep. leaps and bounds. Do you see yourself really continuing, kind of in dual cahoots almost with that communication side of things, working with BBC? Well, I certainly don't see myself retiring any time soon. No, because well. my wife's decided to sell a house in the middle mm. of an economic recession and mm. buy somewhere else. Mm. So, whether by necessity or uh, design, no, I, I genuinely I, I like having the variation. I love what we do. Uh, I love helping clients. I, I love working across a, a broad spectrum of of sports and entertainment. Mm. I miss football. Um, there, there are bits of the game that you kind of try and get back to because technically I, mean, I, I, I consult for the Scottish FA but I need to get back out more the challenge is when you get to weekend time and, yeah. and, and with a family it becomes more difficult to justify two days uh, of your weekend out at, out at football games but I'm open to new things I suppose the other thing always my, my love of music which as you can tell from my yes. t-shirt is probably not um, the most mature taste yes. in music absolutely I've started learning guitar at the age of forty badly. Who knows what the what the career path might might yeah. be from there. But for as long as I can give advice, guidance, involved in sport, work with people and help people in whatever challenges they've got, then yeah. more power to it. And for as long as I can argue with Kenny McIntyre <laughs> As I keep saying, it beats having a real job. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and I mean that it's it's it has its challenges, but I think now more than any other time we realise that since tweets say put football gets put into perspective. But you look at what NHS staff are doing just now, and, yeah. and compare it to a bit of sports PR. You know, there are, there are mm. far more serious things going on just now. But yeah. I I love what I do. Um, and I've never seen it as a job. Yeah. I think the minute you start seeing it as a job, then it's probably time to do something else. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a really nice end to this podcast, Daryl. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for being a guest on the Campbell's Football Podcast. Thank you, and apologies to all those who have been offended throughout the duration of this podcast. <laughs> no worries at all. Well, listener, that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Campbell's Footballs. I hope this podcast was just what the doctor ordered. If you want to listen to previous shows or look out for future shows, follow Campbell's Footballs on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to other podcasts. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Campbell's Footballs. Search for me, StatoG91, or Instagram, or other social media channels. But until then, until next time, I hope you enjoyed the crack and enjoy Campbell's Footballs. What a dangerous night!